Dragon the Peg is recorded in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. Welcome to Drag in the Peg, a podcast series exploring the lives and careers of local drag queens from Winnipeg, Manitoba. My name is Graham Hooson, and I'll be your host. Choosing the guest for the first episode was one of the most difficult decisions I had to make for this project. But when I think of Winnipeg drag, I know it to be out-of-the-box, boundary-shattering, and entirely DIY. Unlike mainstream drag, these kings and queens don't have thousands of dollars to spend on gowns and accessories. Nobody represents those ideas quite like our first guest, who's just as likely to show up to a gig bald and wearing an outfit made of balloons as she is to turn out with a gown and a wig. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome the mother of the House of Bath and a staple of the Sunshine Bunch, Pharaoh Moans. My name is Pharaoh Moans. I am a queen here in Winnipeg. I'm kind of a club kid, avant-garde aficionado and a boylesque dancer. Everyone that I have told today, when I say that I'm interviewing pheromones, everyone is so excited. Everyone knows instantly who that is. Oh, that's so weird. Yeah, you're very well known. <laughs> even even people that I wouldn't expect to know drag queens in Winnipeg are like, oh, pheromones, oh, yes. They're probably confusing me with pheromone. I also get that all the time. Where Do they're you? Like, yes. It's were ridiculous. You, were you upset when, when pheromone went on RuPaul's Drag Race and... No, because our aesthetic is very different, Mm -hmm. and she's way more popular. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. Like, people have same names, close names. And I like my name more than Pharaoh's. Mine is Pharaoh, like the Egyptian king. Mm -hmm. And then Moan's plural, because she's sexual, I guess, (laughs) in nature. Yeah, it was totally fine. Speaking of being very, very well known, your costumes are quite legendary both in and out of the local drag scene you're known for wearing things that are clothing and are not necessarily clothing i'm thinking specifically of an outfit you wore for nui blanche which was just like styrofoam cups yeah and that was really cool so tell me a little bit about like your style and your and your design uh the style and design it all comes from this big pot of inspiration that i sort of pull out from. I'm always chasing visions, and I talk very much about the muses. The muses guide me, and then I just kind of follow them, and wherever I go, I land. But I am inspired from fashion, of course. I'm, ex- I'm inspired by Alexander McQueen. I'm inspired by the Club Kid movements of the 80s and early 90s in New York City. That's always been a big piece of my aesthetic, because they push boundaries in ways that was not being done before them. Not really. And I'm also very inspired by the 60s punk movement in England, specifically. I really love, like, Sid Vicious and the Sex Pistols. And I really think that that's something very important to who Pharaoh Moans is because I feel like punk and drag are very much the same thing. Whereas the external presentations that you have it doesn't really matter if you're wearing leather or a gown or something but underneath it all 
you're giving a middle finger up and you're you're revealing a truth about society as you know it. So I think that the punk movement certainly does that and the drag movement certainly does that as well. And that's why it's so important for me to like hold on to that sort of aesthetic. So if drag reveals a truth about the society as you know it, mm-hmm. what is that truth in terms of drag to you? For me, drag reveals truths about gender expression. It reveals truth about the binary. And in a sense, I do it for that reason. It has very little to do with my ego. I could care less, you know. It's not like I get some sort of... I mean, I do get fulfillment from performing and from meeting people and and challenging those norms that we have placed on people in society here on the Western side of the world. I call drag my political statement because it makes impact without me even ever having to say a word. I don't have to discuss these thoughts. I can go out and make a statement in my immediate surroundings just by walking down the street in styrofoam cups or ribbon or, you know, like whatever weird material I choose to make an outfit for that day. Speaking of the punk movement, also, I don't, I don't know if I told you this before. You spit on me. You spat on me one time. You oh spat god. vodka on me. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> I was, at, I was in the crowd at, um, at Rainbow Trout, and I was taking photos, and um, you bent down, and you, you were taking a drink of vodka, I believe, and I was like, oh, that's so cool, and then suddenly you spat it, and half of me was like, ah, oh, keep your camera up. That's a great photo, and the other half of me was like, save the camera. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I actually learned that moment. from Peaches. I had her backup dancers spit booze on me once when I went to see her perform live. I think she just wore an, an entire outfit made of fake tits, which was pretty fucking cool. I was totally into it. And then, yeah, one of her backup dancers like spit on me, and I lived for it. So I totally stole that. And that rainbow trout was really fucking fun. Like mm-hmm. I really enjoyed myself. I was high on acid when I hit the stage. Whoa. Yeah. Really? Yeah, it was so good. And then I crowd surfed, and I brought some guy up on stage who had, like, what, Cheerios? Yeah. And then he started throwing these random Cheerios into the audience. I made out with someone for, like, two minutes mm-hmm. to the crowd's applause, which was really <laughs> fun. Spat at you. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was like, I'm living my rock star fantasy right now. Like, that was pretty fucking cool. Wow. And you did a costume change. I did. You did? Yeah. An intricate one as well, at that. Yeah. Well, I needed help. Especially because, like, the second costume was, it was a plaid material. Mm-hmm. So I'm just staring at all these shapes. Again, high on acid. <laughs> I have no shame, by the way. And I was like, I don't know what limb goes where. So I definitely definitely needed help behind stage to be able to pull that off. But mm-hmm. it was fun. <laughs> yeah, it was fun to watch. Mm-hmm. So you were talking a little bit before about when you love drag the most. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it goes back to sort of my political statement, and that's, I have no shame, as I just said, and my favorite parts of drag are the really messy parts, to be honest. I really love um, when I'm walking home from the bar downtown in just, like, a thong and thigh-high boots, you know, like... I feel with messy makeup and I've been sweating all day, you know, I just performed some ludicrous act on stage 
Um, and it's those moments that I find most important when it comes to my drag. Being in a queer space, people kind of already expect you to be in drag or to present in a certain way. But when you take it to the streets and you are literally shocking people who weren't expecting to see this big pride float of a character walk by them, that's the most important part. That's when I feel like I am normalizing spaces the most. That's when I feel like I'm leveling thing out. And again, creating that shock value that I live for. So one of my favorite times like in those instances at like 3 a.m. walking home, for some reason I had left one of the queer bars here and I walked to the Robin's Donuts on St. Mary's around there. Mm -hmm. And for some reason I was compelled to change. I don't remember why, but I was like, I'm just going to change in the alley. No big deal. (laughs) This is great. So I literally like stripped down to nothing. And just as I'm like naked, I think maybe I was still wearing boots. Um, I was just naked, chilling out, doing my thing. Some poor uh, city of Winnipeg employee was like walking around, blowing leaves Uh. from the sides of the alley. Totally saw me standing there naked and just like (laughs) didn't know what to do. He was actually very kind and he kind of like kept his distance. Probably, I mean, that was probably for his own good. Um, But he kept his distance, and I'm just, like, doing my thing, trying to change as fast as I can, still naked. And then as soon as I was done, I was like, oh, hey, (laughs) how you doing? But I live for that. Like, I feel like that's punk. It's taking back space that I want, where I'm able to just do stuff anywhere. I should be able to change in a back alley if I want, like, right? And I should be able to walk home safely in pumps and a thong if I want. And so for me, that's where that punk thing comes. Because again, it's like giving the middle finger to what you are expected to do or not do in our city, which is just my big concrete playground, really. Mm-hmm. I love it. Speaking of um, cities and concrete backgrounds, I am killing these segues right now. I know. Good for you. Um, (laughs) Speaking of cities and concrete playgrounds and and the punk kind of environment, you grew up in rural Manitoba, which is a very different, uh, not typically what you'd associate with punk. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, I mean, in terms of punk, I think that the oppression of living in rural Manitoba really created that aggression for me and that angst. And so Mm -hmm. that's kind of where that came from. But yeah, I was uh, born here in Winnipeg, but I was raised north of Bozager. So it was like past terrible little places like Ladywood. (laughs) (laughs) And I lived along the Brokenhead River. Just weird, strange names, right? So I actually started my life out as a farm boy. It's like from farm boy to drag queen. I guess <laughs> that'll be the name of my book one day. And so I lived there until I was seven, and then my parents divorced, and then I was raised in Bozager until I was 16, which was an experience, for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Being a queer kid specifically in, in rural Manitoba, what did that feel like? It was so isolating. And it was very, very difficult. And it's strange because people knew that I wasn't heterosexual before I did. 
And I was called. I mean, I shouldn't say it on your podcast. No, you can. I mean, it's a, it's oh, really? Open, yeah, totally. Fabulous. I was called a faggot back in like grade two. I think that was the first time that I was called a faggot. And I mean, I had no idea of what that even meant at that time. But as I say, here we are. And then I just kind of rolled with it. But yeah, it was very isolating, very segregating. There wasn't a queer community out there at all. Like it was each queer person on their own trying to hide it as much as they can. And boys, I mean, I hardly identify with that, but I was seen as a boy back then. Boys were expected to do certain things, and girls were expected to do certain things. And I didn't want to be a boy. I didn't want to play in the dirt and play with tractors and trucks. And I didn't want to grow up working on a farm, riding a tractor around, you know, finding a girlfriend and marrying her by the time I was 20, have kids and just live in Bozier. Like, it was just so small. And it's so interesting because, like, in that world, it was so sort of myopic that it was its own bubble. So there were very few times when I felt like I was part of a bigger picture. And I thank God to this day that I always had the sense of, there's a bigger world out there. It's not just this small town. This is not all that exists. Because living there, that's what it feels like. Bozier was the world, and that was it. So it was too small, and I was alone. I had no community. And I was considered an outcast. I was considered a freak. And, I mean, some of my fashion choices even back then. I mean, <laughs> in, like, grade six, I was wearing black lipstick and using bungee cords as necklaces and paperclip <laughs> bracelets and stuff and I was wearing leather and spikes even then and I think that that was part of that angst like no I I was so resistant to the idea of wearing flannel and jeans cowboy boots and like go back to the old farm uh, I wasn't into it it was hard so then when you came to Winnipeg was that kind of your opportunity to connect with a greater queer community it could have been, but it wasn't. I didn't take it as such. I think that I was so angry at that time in my life. So I left my my family when I was 16. I'd come out at 15. I left at 16. I moved to Winnipeg. And um, I, I was so full of anger that I don't think that there was room for community in my life at that point. I was just an angsty little asshole. So I was I was still pushing people away because of the anger that I had felt. And it took it took a long time for me to actually tap into a queer community that I really loved and felt like I belonged to. And I had tried. I, I think it wasn't until I was maybe 24 that I finally had a sense of, like, who my people are and who I belong to. When you when you left and you came to Winnipeg at age 16, where did you, where did you stay? I think... I had planned it all out, actually. I was kind of, like, very meticulous in what I had done. I knew at 15 that I didn't want to be in Bozager. I knew that by 16, the law would allow me to go anywhere. Nobody was going to take me back. Mm -hmm. um, so I had actually formed a relationship with somebody um, when I was 15, and then I kind of used them as that catalyst to get into the city. So I'd lived with... Uh, boyfriend at the time and his family mm -hmm. which 
was still a lot of work too because I went from the insanities of my family and then I took on a whole different a whole different way of being insane with another family and that particular person wound up being very vitriolic and so it just it just amplified my own anger so it was kind of a messy situation to be in but that's what happened I wound up moving in with a boyfriend and Mm -hmm. his family in Windsor Park (laughs) (laughs) and were your parents did they know that you were leaving did they were Mm. they okay with it no I wound up not speaking to my family for about five years between the ages of 16 and, I guess, 21. So my mom was not okay with me moving to Winnipeg, and I didn't give her a choice, and I went through CFS. I had essentially emancipated at that point. Mm-hmm. And was it in part because of your queerness that that tension existed? Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember coming out to my family. Oh, God, I'm going all candid here. (laughs) I remember um, coming out to my family, and it was pretty difficult. I remember um, the youngest of my siblings. I don't even care. I'm disclosing this because it happened. The youngest of my siblings wound up crying and had said something along the lines of, I don't want you to get HIV. And I was like, oh, okay, this is the mentality that I'm dealing with here. And I had come from a big family, like there were six kids, and my father had left, and so my mother was the only parent there. So there were frustrations with that alone, and we lived in Manitoba housing, we were in a small box, like six kids and a mother in one home sharing one bathroom type of thing, it's a lot, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that growing up we were all trying to like fight for our own identities along the way. So when I had come out, I thought that I would have had more support than I did, but unfortunately not. And to this day, none of my siblings have come to any of my drag shows. The only person, strangely enough, who does is my mother, which is very, it's very kind of her. It's, it's how she shows that she supports me now, mm-hmm. which is great. So you've reconnected with at least your mother? Yeah, uh, it's it's a good relationship. It can be tumultuous at times, but it's it's good that she's back in my life. And at 22, I realized, like, oh, gosh, it's been half a decade since I've spoken to any of them. I was like, I'm going to die soon, and maybe I should think about reconnecting. I'm not actually going to die soon, <laughs> but, you know, like, half a decade, that's a long time. Soon it would have been a decade, then two decades, then three decades, then it would have been, you know, me on my deathbed wishing I was talking to my mother so it was really nice that we were able to reconnect it's just there are some things in my family that there are some places where we don't see eye to eye in my family especially amongst my siblings some of them still live out in rural Manitoba and even further out than Bozager and I'm very big on safe spaces and there are spaces out there that are not safe, perhaps not even particularly against myself, but there are, there's a lack of safe spaces out there. So when I go out there and I see situations amidst my family that I disagree with, I'm very open and very vocal about it. But because I'm one in seven, um, I'm generally still painted with the brush of the deviant or the outcast. And I'm always so surprised. It's very weird. It's very weird to me because when I come back to my queer family, they get it. They get the importance of these things. And so 
it's been very difficult at times to kind of educate at some level while at the same time alienating myself. And then I, I, I have a lack of patience for educating people as well mm-hmm. who are part of like the larger society because it's not my job to. And there's Google, and people should be able to search these things up. Like, my siblings have no idea what intersectionality is. They have no idea what marginalization is. They have no idea what cisgendered means. And I'm kind of like, I can't be pulling teeth to teach you. Mm-hmm. And if that means that you don't want to interact with my life, that's fine. That's mm-hmm. I'm doing the best I can. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't understand kind of the emotional toll that it takes to constantly validate an existence and and educate i mean there's there's a certain amount of of explanation i think that kind of has to come with queerness but doing it all the time and constantly having to validate that that can be exhausting absolutely especially for people that just aren't there Mm -hmm. and if it becomes very clear that they don't support your lifestyle choice it kind of it just it's just a waste of energy for me Hello, here we are. Miss Satina Loren. Girl, congratulations on a fabulous year. On behalf of both myself and the House of Bath, I wanted to wish you continued success in your drag career. You're incredible, girl. Je t'aime beaucoup. So I'm going to do some little meringue for now because it's like the 29th anniversary of it or some shit. So, here we go. So then let's talk a little bit about your queer family. Uh, you said queer family. How did that How did that come to be? Uh, my queer family really came to be through the creation of Like That, through the Sunshine House. Um, before then, I didn't really have a community or a family. And this is a group of people that I really love and I think about daily and I've gotten so close to in ways I wouldn't have been able to ever imagine. So it's fantastic. And there's a bunch of uh, players who um, are drag royalty. So it's always fun painting face together. It's such bonding experiences, right? Mm-hmm. And and performing together and really, really having each other's backs. It's good. But not everybody is. And even the folks who don't necessarily do drag, they are certainly part of my queer family and we do everything together everything we go and see movies in the winter we go to the park and pretend like we know how to do yoga (laughs) mind you i haven't done yoga in like more than a year let's get real let's let's get real like we drink together (laughs) so then how did you get involved with sunshine house and the like that um it happened one it's so interesting because some of the best times and best experiences of my life, including drag, were times when things just kind of chose me. I just remained open enough as a vessel (laughs) to allow an experience in. And so I had been hanging out with Prairie Sky. I had met her. I remember the first time I met her, I was just like, you are going to be my drag sister, and that's that, because you're fabulous. <laughs> so we had been hanging out at that point, and we had been going to the bars and stuff and doing Nuit Blanche. And one day, she sent me a text, and it was just like, hey, do you want to come and sit at a board meeting to see if we can start some sort of collective uh, or initiative at that time of queer individuals, a drop-in through the Sunshine House? 
um, of which Prairie had worked previously before. And I was like, sure. I don't know necessarily what that means, but I'm down for the ride. Let's do it. So we created the Like That program, and it's, I think, going to be celebrating its fourth year. Oh, actually, by the time you all have heard this, it will have celebrated its fourth year. So it's in its fourth year. Um, and yeah, the rest is history. Like it just grew and grew and grew and we met more and more and more folks. And again, the idea of the, like that program was, uh, to create a space, a safe space where folks can come together and create community outside of bars and clinics. Because prior to that, that was really the only place that you could go to find friends and family. I mean, not to exclude the work of Rainbow Resource Center, for example. There have been other drop-ins, but there was a lack of drop-ins for sure. Mm-hmm. A lack of safe spaces. So we created one. And from what I understand, the Like That program is also... Or sorry, the Sunshine Bunch is kind of the fundraising arm of the Like That Foundation. Yes. <laughs> so Like That certainly does serve a demographic of queer individuals... And we offer resources through their harm reduction supplies. As much as that term is really like bothering me right now because it's become such a buzzword. But harm reduction supplies, um, uh, community support, just just love, you know. So the Sunshine Bunch is a component of like that. And what we do is we use our drag to raise funds to keep the program going. So there's a misconception that the Like That program is just for drag royalty, and that's totally not it. We actually get up to so much other stuff. When I started working there, I was a volunteer for the first little while, and then somehow push came to shove, and I wound up working um, at another program called Our Place Safe Space, which does like pretty much the exact same thing as like that, but it serves a demographic of folks who identify as being sex workers, experientials, um, survivors, and victims of the sex trade. So it's a whole other thing, but it's such important work for me as well. And we do exactly that. At Our Place Safe Space, we meet every Friday, and uh, we just paint our nails or we watch a movie. We create art together. Um, we fundraise together. We have dinner together. And that's really snuck up on me as being part of my pride and joy. Like, that's my baby. But Our Place Safe Space is also my baby. I'm so proud of it and how it's expanding as well. So that's kind of what I do. That's That's the work I do. And... My drag just happens to be an extension of all of it. Um, when we do fundraising for Our Place Safe Space, of course, my drag persona goes and performs. And what's wonderful about it now, too, is I have such support from my queer family that when I am raising funds for Our Place Safe Space, I can just call up my drag family and people will come out and 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 give up their time and and be artistic and, you know, put on their makeup and make outfits and and come out. And the burlesque world has been very kind too. So the last fundraiser we did for Our Play Safe Space was like this weird percolation of all these great people from my burlesque world, from my drag world, and from my, I guess you would say, social services world, the nonprofit world. It was everyone in this wonderful little safe space, this little bubble of 
it was like utopia and we raised tons of money for it and I was so happy. It was really, really good. So kind of going back to that rural Winnipeg upbringing, you had the chance to attend Riding Mountain National Park's first ever Pride, and you performed there. What was that like for you? It was pretty cathartic for me, to be honest, because it touched up on my own life so closely. Bozeger to this day does not have Pride. I think that there are very few places in Manitoba outside of Winnipeg that have Pride. I mean, Portage La Prairie and Brandon, of course they do. But outside of that, very few. So, going to Riding Mountain National Park, it was such important work for me. It was important. It was like I was performing to an older version of myself. It was like I was there for the next generation. And it really put me in in line, I guess, of this history of these places. And, and to make impact there and to be so well-received was really cool. It was trippy. It was really trippy. <laughs> and I really hope that Bozeger does do Pride sometime. I would totally go and perform there. It's weird. Like, I never really want to go back to Bozeger, but I would perform at a Pride there. So Riding Mountain National Park was beautiful. It's funny because it's at Clear Lake, obviously. And um, I've now done this for two years, and I hardly even see the lake <laughs> I've never spent any time there. And it's a rush because we're actually camping. We we take the opportunity to bring folks from the Like That program out with us. So we just pack a whole van full of people. And we sling up the tents and we chill there for a weekend. And doing drag in the bush like that totally rocks my world. <laughs> but also it was it's important to bring those Like That folks as well because we're so busy in our drop-in sometimes that it's really nice to get away from everything. And I feel like the bonding experience between folks out there in an entirely different environment um, happens so fast and yet so organically. So it's very cool to do that. And again, dragon tents is just hilarious. I can't even... <laughs> and then you're making coffee on a percolator on a fire in the morning and like eating hamburgers again, from the same fire that's just been burning all weekend, right? Like, it's cool. So let's talk a little bit about your burlesque career. What's that all about? Is that is that mostly tied in with your drag, or is that kind of a separate component of it? It started off as a separate component, um, but I still use the stage name Pheromones. It just sort of happened, again, like great things. I, I applied for the Winnipeg International Burlesque Festival and was accepted, and I was, I was elated. Um, and I am kind of, I, I kind of wear this quite proudly, but I'm actually Winnipeg's premier boyless dancer, which is kind of cool. I mean, whatever. <laughs> for me, I'm kind of like, that's cool. Um, and it was another way for me to express myself, but perhaps not so, not so drastically and not so much on the androgynous, well, it was androgynous, but more, I find that pheromones in drag generally leans to the more feminine sides of expression, no matter how androgynous I try to be. She's, they, he, it's kind of 
more femme. So to do the boylesque thing, that was very much a way for me to express myself more on a more masculine side. Um, and it has a different sex appeal to it, which I was definitely into. Unfortunately, um, I had taken a hiatus of it, but I'm so wanting to go back to it because the burlesque world is very special. The performers are all so kind. Like, backstage is so much fun. And we perform at such interesting venues. Like, the first time I performed at Park Theater was through burlesque. It was it was great to get naked on stage. <laughs> I took a hiatus, though, because I wasn't really... I was having body issues at that point, which sounds ridiculous because I'm, like, scrawny. <laughs> but it really stopped me from, like, applying to further burlesque shows which kind of sucks because that's not what burlesque is about burlesque is all about embracing your body no matter what shape it is no matter what size it is you know like so i'm really quite excited to get back into that probably in the new year i want to be where the twinks all are i want to see want to see them dancing walking around on those what do you call them Oh yeah, each other. Flipping your wings, you don't get too far. Heels are required for jumping, voguing, my dear. Strolling along down a bar, just a bar. Up where they walk, up where they run, up where they fight, all day in the sun. Wandering free, wishing I could eat. So as we were saying before, a couple of you've you've gotten some hate online before. Isn't it great? I it's <laughs> it's a little bit bamboozling. Um, oh, I like that. So specifically after Red by Queens, it, a very um, Christian, queer phobic, um, a little bit absurd website that I don't want to name because I don't want to give them any attention for it. Right. Um made some pretty awful comments about you. It was pretty, yeah. <laughs> it's 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 conf- they they were um so it was in response to Read by Queens, which of course is is reading to young children storybooks at the Millennium Library. Mm-hmm. And I suppose they thought that you were corrupting young children's minds. Is I yeah, think what, what did they, they say? Mentally molesting children's minds. Uh, I or believe something. that's what it is. <laughs> it's so good. Oh my god. Oh. And by good, I mean totally tragic. Mm. For me, there's a fine. There's like not even a fine line. I find that tragedy and hilarity are the same thing. Like the tragic and the comic. It's so good. So sometimes you'll hear me laughing and be like, oh, that's so good. But it was really quite terrible and very obscure what they were saying about me. Um, Yeah. And they took something that was very good because the Red by Queens is great. It's a way to bridge gaps between generations and normalize, again, expression doesn't even have to necessarily be gender expression just expression mm-hmm. so the next generation hopefully will be able to feel like they can wear whatever they want or they can present themselves however they want so we've done the red by queens quite often we've actually we actually did it at riding mountain national park as well oh. and f- no we didn't do it 
Yeah, we did it at Fort Francis, Ontario as well for their pride. Oh. So we've been we've been reading to kids for a while now. And to see that, it kind of shocked me. And the only reason why I found out about it was because I was being all narcissistic and I searched my name up on Google and checked out <laughs> all the images to see if there were any that I could post up on Instagram that I had never gotten before. <laughs> so I saw this and I didn't even know how to take it. Like, it's so absurd to me. <laughs> and at the same time, I'm like, well, if you want to recognize me, that's nice. At least my name's getting out there. Like, mm-hmm. what can I do about it? It's, it's wild. And it also makes me very happy I don't live in America, among other reasons. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So in specifically that article, they use some, some, besides just saying very disgusting, horrible things about you, they also use like a lot of slurs and they make a lot of mislabels and yes. just terrible things in general. Did that affect you at all when you saw that being written about you? I, mm, I imagine that somewhere it did i think that rejection gets anybody and in that sense it was a form of rejection um and that's something that i work very hard to um stop others from feeling because i think that i felt it so much in my life you know i it, it goes back to all those childhood traumas and but I mean, every anytime that I'm rejected and I feel that sting, you know, it brings me back to, like, being called a fag in grade three and being rejected from my father and being rejected from rural Manitoba and being, you know, rejection, 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 rejection. So I think that at some level it does affect me, but it's very rare that I'll ever let that show. I'll normally just laugh about it and just keep on rolling because that's all you can really do. Like, I can't... I can't convince those authors of that article. I wouldn't even call them that. I don't know. Because most of it was stolen from McLean's. Yeah, most of it was copywritten. Yeah. So on top of that, they couldn't even come up with their own material. Good for them, you know? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And the whole... And and they were Christian, too, right? Actually, what bothers me most is some of the slurs that were used. And not even necessarily against me, but just the language was pretty brutal. Like... And I won't even repeat it because it's pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the freak part, I'm just kind of like, uh, like, yeah, <laughs> here we are. If you could respond to that and directly speak to the authors, what do you think you would say? Swearing's perfectly allowed on this podcast. Yeah, it's kind of like, I'd probably just say, fuck you. Like, mm-hmm. I don't even know. Like, I, I don't know if I would even engage with that sort of level of like small thinking because again if i was to engage with them it would be me educating them on the importance of what it is i'm doing and people who use such language and people who have already made up their minds about me without knowing who i actually am or what i'm actually doing i don't think that you could be convinced and again it would just be a waste of energy so it would be fuck you <laughs> like and i'm just going to continue on doing what i'm going to do make some My favorite part was 
time she went to shave her already shaved head. She needed to have one shaved head, am I right? Alright. But in all seriousness, that was punk rock as fuck. And there's still money all over this floor. And yes, Katina did teach me how to pick it up with my butt cheeks. Don't worry, it's punk rock not to pay your bills. So you were involved with Vita Lamour de Cosmo in making the Drag 101 workshops with Prairie Theatre Exchange. Tell yeah. me a little bit about that experience. Oh my gosh. That experience was incredible. Um, so the idea was that we had an eight-week course that people would register through PTE. And um, we would teach them absolutely everything that they needed to know to do drag. Um in that eight-week span, and then at the end of it, after learning all of those skills, um, we featured them in their very first drag show. Mm-hmm. And that became very personal to me, too, in ways that I had not expected. Because, I don't know, I thought that... I thought that I would... I thought that it would just be a job, and that I would just teach what I knew, and then that was that. But these students are now kids of mine like these are my drag kids now mm-hmm. and they've done such a great job of integrating into the queer community and they're so active in it i'm proud of every one of them and i'm proud of the work that vita and i have done it surprised me too because they were very little it was actually there were actually more cisgendered female students or children now mm-hmm. that participated and that was really cool and so I guess by the time you're hearing this, I will be starting my second year of doing this. I have no idea how many students I'm going to have, but I'm excited. I'm excited to get close to a new group of folks. I don't know what's in store, but I'm very proud of it. I'm proud to have been able to teach not only, well, I didn't do the wig part. <laughs> Vita did the wigs. Um, I was able to share my knowledge of drag because I have been doing it for nine years and um, it's never been seen as something that's valuable. And now it's like, now I'm wise enough in this area. I'm skilled enough in this area where I'm able to share what I know, but it's also being valued as something. And that was a shift for me. And it's a shift to just teach instead of just being the student yourself. And of course there's that like blah, 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 old cliche thing of like, teachers are students too you learn from the students and it's true that definitely happened but yeah it was really cool and so yeah we're expanding to 10 weeks this january and we are teaching everything from hairstyling your wigs again vita's doing that (laughs) um makeup character development stage presence which i love so much i love working on the stage with folks i think it's great but the more important stuff for me is stuff like slang terminology. I have these kids learning their history. You know, we give them homework. We're like, you better watch Paris is Burning because that's important. Watch your Divine films. That's important. You know, because these are great influences on everyone in the queer and drag community. And you started drag, is it nine years ago now? Yeah, nine years. So now it seems like drag certainly has exploded with kind of new drag queens popping up all the time mm-hmm. and all of them are so wonderful and 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 bringing new things when you started back then what was that experience like how is it different than than what you've seen now 
Oh gosh, it's been so, it's so different. It's so cool and it's so different. And I've been very happy to experience the kind of shift of the drag landscape here in Winnipeg. Um, back then, again, I didn't decide to do drag. I kind of feel like it chose me, which was <laughs> weird how I just find myself in these situations. But it's been a ride since then. Back then, drag was, um, it was very, I would say, white. <laughs> I feel like people of color and people who didn't identify as being cisgendered men took up very little space, very, very little space. No, everybody just wanted to see the drag queens. And there was definitely this sort of feel of like pageant queens kind of ruling the drag kingdom or whatever the fuck. Um, and there were only a few players that would get all of those sort of opportunities. And nobody was paying drag queens back then. Very few um, events would actually pay these artists for their time. And back then, and something that I actually did like about it was that I had a drag mother. I came before the whole YouTube, teach yourself these skills on your own. So the drag mom thing is very... It's traditional. It's part of an older world, which is cool. And I'm very blessed to have been able to learn what I learned from a queen, like an apprentice. Mm -hmm. So that was very different as well. Um, now things are really opening up. There are safer spaces. And I think that we are acknowledging the problematic behaviors of, of the spaces of old and as well, the performances that used to go on. People used to be a lot more politically incorrect with their performances. And in fact, one of the queer bars used to have uh, an event, was it once a year? I think I think it was once a year, that was literally deemed the politically incorrect show. And so I, I'm sure there was so much problematic activity that was going on there that just, you wouldn't get away with that these days, which is really, really good. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we've created a safer space for folks. I find that there is now an influx of, and I hate the term, but it describes it. There's an influx of bio queens now. So people who are not necessarily cisgendered men are now taking up spaces. And there's this whole new generation of these fabulous like queer performers who are now running their own shows and really making impact with their looks and they have signature faces and it's really really exciting to see that the one thing between the old landscape of drag winnipeg and the new is that we still don't have tons of drag kings mm -hmm. I, I want more drag kings i want more club kids i want more drag kings um because that's still one of those pieces that are still left out in the dark drag kings are not valued the same way that drag queens are and i really wish that we could get more and hopefully through pte maybe i'll have some new drag kings this time around i think it'd be <laughs> fabulous from farm boy to drag queen like <laughs> that's that's pretty much my life it's pretty great <laughs> in a nutshell that's it awesome well thank you so much for sitting down with me today it was my pleasure this is great it's so nice here Actually, I could just <laughs> chat all day. Just be like, <laughs> Thank you so much to Pharaoh for sitting down with me. 
Our next guest is without a doubt the most decorated queen in the city, known for her incredible beauty and her show-stopping performances. Here's a clip from her episode. What I didn't realize when you go into it is that drag isn't just dressing like a lady and mashing your mouth up to other people's music for four minutes. You have a podium, and when you are performing, you have a voice and you have an audience, and nine times out of ten, people are listening to everything that you say. So it's a... It's not just an entertainment form, it's a form of activism. And when you have a platform like that, it allows you to talk about things that should be talked about. And even though that drag is always going to be fun, it won't be like a chore to ever do it. But when you have that platform, we make sure that we use it. We make sure that everything that we say is heard. Because there's people who aren't able to speak or who don't feel like they should. And that's what we're here for, is that when you reign as an empress, you represent everybody in your city. And if someone has something to say, you make sure that you either say it for them or let them speak. And of course, thank you endlessly to Claire Boning of Veneer for the wonderful intro and outro music, and to Red River College for letting me use your audio equipment. Until next episode, remember to always tip your local drag queens. (laughs) 